Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Antioch in the book of Acts and how it can be a model for ministry for us. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to thank you for listening to our sermons. Our church runs on a fiscal year. That means that we are currently thinking about the work God has done in our church in the last year. One of the big things that we are celebrating is how many times our sermon audio has been listened to. Over 40,000 times. We reach the top charts in multiple countries in the category of Christianity, and people in countries all over the world listened. The most listened to sermon was one I preached in 2015 called Psalms, Hymns, and Songs. The most listened to sermon that was preached at our church this year was Water Into Wine. Perhaps even cooler is that I was able to talk to people who have been impacted by our sermons that don't even live anywhere near us. We are not a big church and it is truly amazing to know that our sermons are making a difference. Anyway, I want to say a big thank you to all of you who have taken time to listen, especially those of you that listen consistently. From those of you in Delta, Colorado, to those outside of Wichita, Kansas, to those in Los Angeles and Dallas, to those in Boardman, Oregon, to those in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, and everywhere else. I love knowing that you're out there. I love knowing that the preparation I put into making a sermon is important far beyond the walls of our church. Thank you. As always, I hope that this sermon and all the others will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, good evening. Great to be here. And uh, we're continuing in the series on uh, the Church of Antioch. Of course, Antioch was a sending church, right? And... uh, One of the things that it did was to send uh, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark out on what was known as Paul's first missionary journey. And um, so uh, in this particular text, we're looking at hardships. And so that's the that's simply the title of my sermon, Hardships. It's also the assigned topic that Chad gave me. And um, I thought, well, I think I could pull out some illustrative material for that. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to work on that. Um, when I, I was sitting back thinking about this, the image of Wiley E. Coyote, or uh, Wild E. Coyote came to my mind. You know, the Roadrunner thing, that Looney Tunes thing that uh, first came out in 1949. I was not alive when that <laughs> happened, but, um, you know, it's one of those enduring uh, cartoons, you know, and, and uh, when you think of that coyote going after the roadrunner, um, tying himself to a rocket or coming up with all these other ideas and um, constantly being foiled, constantly, you know, running into one disaster after another. And, uh, and so I think, wow. That's kind of what it feels like, you know, when you, you get into these situations and it's like, no matter what you try, no, no matter uh, how ingenious your plan is, sometimes the wheels just come off and, and things go wrong. So it's kind of life this side of eternity. Jesus told us that in the world you have tribulation. So that's part of what we deal with as not just followers of Jesus, is what we deal with in a fallen world. And uh, there are seasons, in, in fact, when it seems like it's better and sometimes when it's worse. But the one thing I, I just want to say right up front is that we need to deal with a major fallacy. 
that the church faces. And it's, it's, con- it's dealt with this for a long time. But the fallacy is that when you become a follower of Jesus, life gets better. That is false teaching. That's not what's witnessed in the scriptures. And uh, we have some very high profile uh, evangelist preaching that message today that if you just follow Jesus, everything is going to be great. I, I remember one megachurch pastor years ago changing the beatitudes to the be happy attitudes. And uh, the idea was, you know, let's just, let's just understand that what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was how to be happy. And, and what we need to do is, is just take on these happy attitudes. And as, as long as we take on these happy attitudes, everything's going to be great. That is not the reality that the Bible depicts for us. Now, I, I, I jokingly said that we have some illustrative material, but, you know, there was a time when our family went through about a five or six year period where we dealt with one major catastrophe after another. Um, my, and to, starting in 2008, uh, one of the most beloved human beings in my life, my Auntie Claire, she was an aunt who lived with our family for 36 years, uh, died. So that was a huge loss. And then about a year later, my mom died. Seven months later, my dad died. Not long after that, my best friend and motorcycle riding buddy, Dave, died of a brain tumor. Uh, and then uh, Crystal's fiance, uh, Michael, who had been in our lives for nine years, was killed in a car accident. Uh, and then after that, Diane's sister, Sherry, one of the people, the, the sister with whom she had the closest relationship in her family, died of a heroin overdose. Uh, along with that, we learned that our youngest son uh, had a psychotic break and would never be the same again. And, uh, you know, you, you just start stacking all of these things up, and it's just like one catastrophic event after another, and you start feeling a little bit like wild E. Coyote. And you feel like no matter what you try, no matter how you try to keep your chin up, no matter what you uh, do in terms of putting on the right attitude, it doesn't make your situation any better. But as I say that, you can probably read things from your own story into that experience because all of us, all of us have had difficult, challenging seasons in our lives. The Apostle Paul is no exception. In fact, when we start thinking about the things that Paul did in his life, we find that being a follower of Jesus certainly didn't make things any easier for him. One of my friends has preached on that. He said, when did ever answering God's call make life easier? It doesn't. Makes it more difficult and complicated. Paul certainly knew that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Verses 23 through 27, Paul says, I've been put in prison, I've been whipped, times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Five times. Three times, I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift in the sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and robbers. I have faced uh, danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. The list goes on and on. I mean, this is a man who is answering God's call and doing God's will. And what Paul tells us is that things don't necessarily go better when you become a follower of Jesus. And in our sermon text, we see one of these examples. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. Let me read that. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. Now, why do you suppose they thought he was dead? Because they had just stoned him with big rocks. You know, it's not like taking little pebbles and, you know, trying to, you know, sting, sting him or, or these, you know, if you're intent on picking up stones and throwing them at a person to kill them, you're aiming at their head, you're using big rocks with jagged edges, and you are hurling them with all of your strength. And this whole crowd gathered round and threw stones at Paul until they thought he was dead. So he was certainly knocked unconscious. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Now, when Paul got up and walked back into town, it wasn't like, oh, hey, he's healed. Everything is okay. He's, he's good. I would imagine that Paul was a wreck. And if they had an ER, he would have been a perfect candidate to be in the ER. He probably needed stitches that he never got. He probably had a severe concussion. And things may have been different for Paul for the rest of his life after that because of those injuries. The text goes on. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. So now they're looping back. They're making their way back to the church in Antioch eventually. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They turned, to the, they, turned, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. But the phrase, the phrase, we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's a powerful phrase, especially in light of what Paul must have looked like. That his nose was broken, that both his eyes were black, that he had lacerations all over his head, his arms, his body. I'll bet he looked like death warmed over when he was there 
And so when he was going into the churches telling people, we must suffer many things, you can imagine maybe a couple of broken teeth, uh, fat lip, eyes swollen, maybe shut. You know, he, he looked terrible when, when uh, he went out of there. Here's the thing I want us to think about tonight. We must be ready for hardships. We must be ready because they're coming. So I want to look at two simple reasons why we must be ready for hardships, and then I want to look at a couple of do's and don'ts. Okay? And then we'll be done. Then we can go back out into the heat. We can escape this <laughs> nice air-conditioned building and go back into our hot cars and go wherever we're going to go. All right, we need to be ready for hardships because hardships happen. I've already made that point, but let me elaborate on that a little bit more. Hardships happen no matter how good you are. Let me just let that sink in. Because sometimes what we think is that the reason why we're suffering hardships is because we what? We, we, we did something bad, we made God angry, you know, we wouldn't be suffering these things if we were living right, right? That's, that's why, why do we think that? Because there are people who actually teach that stuff, and uh, they, they misuse the Bible when they do that, because the truth is that we suffer hardships. Hardships happen. Jesus said, I alluded to this earlier, uh, the time is coming, Jesus said. Indeed, it is here now when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now that's what Jesus, our Savior, says about life this side of eternity. In this world, you will have many trials and sorrows. That's a big, big thing. Many trials and sorrows. Not all of these trials and sorrows, by the way, happen just because we're serving God. Some of these trials and sorrows happen just because we live in a fallen world. And not all of these trials and sorrows are similar. There are big trials and sorrows, right? We've got cancer. We have physical and emotional abuse, job loss, divorce, losing a loved one. The list goes on. Those are, those are big trials and sorrows. But there are other trials and sorrows that we deal with on a smaller scale. And uh, car trouble, job stress, relationship stress, your daily commute to work. I can relate to that one. I got a 30-mile commute each way, every day. An annoying neighbor. There are lots of hassles that we, we face in life. Death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, and um, these 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 two are trials and sorrows. And I haven't even listed anything relating to being a follower of Jesus Christ. This last Friday, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. 
And uh, my chief operations officer came into me and he said, he told me the news. Uh, and uh, he said, so I just, I, I wanted you to have, have, a, have a heads up so we're ready for any fallout. And I thought, fallout? What kind of fallout would we have? <laughs> you know, well, okay, yeah, we're, we're a conservative evangelical seminary. And, you know, we're a fairly high-profile institution that stands for Jesus. I guess there is a risk, isn't there? Now, so far as I know, nothing happened this time. Uh, but it wouldn't be the first time that we've had uh, people enact violence against the, the campus. And uh, so, you know, things can, be, things can be challenging. When we stand up for Jesus Christ, we're going to be persecuted. You know, if we're, if we're standing up for what Jesus has called us to do and be and witness of, we're going to have people who don't like that. And we are living in a time when the, the ends, the poles have gotten harder and the middle has gotten softer. What I mean by that is most people don't live in the, in the safe middle. They're living on the extremes. Our culture is polarized. And so what we have is, is this rabid, angry dogmatism on both sides of the fence when it comes to politics, when it comes to morals, when it comes to choices. And what we find is that in a situation like that, all we need to do is simply be consistent with our faith and our convictions as followers of Jesus. We're going to find ourselves on, on the receiving end of persecution. That's just the way it is. And... Um, the, the striking thing is that the absence of hardships is not necessarily an indication of God's favor. It, it doesn't work that way. So just because things are going well for you doesn't necessarily mean that God is showing extra favor on you. Um, Job, in Job 21, verses 7 through 13 he had to confront a very challenging reality in his own life because he was a good man and he was suffering bitterly and he didn't understand why. He didn't understand why he had lost his children and all of his possessions and finally his health. And he was sitting there on this ash heap, a heap of ashes, and he's got boils all over his skin that would boil up and break open. And he was scraping the sores with broken pottery when his friends came up to comfort him. And Job sat back, and for the first time in his life, he was forced to confront a really stark contradiction. Because Job had, had been raised to believe that when you do well, God rewards you with a good life. And when you do evil, you get what you deserve. And now as Job is sitting on that hill, and he's dealing with his own failing health and in constant pain, and he's derided by former friends and colleagues who are now looking at him as a pariah, 
he realizes this. Why do the wicked prosper, growing old and powerful? They live to see their children grow up and settle down, and they enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are safe from every fear, and God does not punish them. Their bulls never fail to breed, their cows bear calves, and never miscarry. They let their children frisk about like lambs. Their little ones skip and dance. They sing with tambourine and harp. They celebrate to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity, then go down to the grave in peace. See, Job is, is looking at the wicked, and he's saying, for the first time in my life, I realize that things don't make sense. Good people suffer. Evil people don't suffer. And that doesn't make any sense. And Job had to recalibrate his entire theology. By the way, when God showed up in the whirlwind later on at the end of the book of Job, God spent not one word explaining to Job the meaning of suffering. He spent all his time, God spent all his time talking to Job about how little he really knew, how little Job really knew. And that Job thinks he's God? Then explain how all of this works. Explain how this came into existence. God didn't apologize for one thing. And Job accepted the fact after that divine encounter that God is God and we are not. And uh, part of, of, the, of the compulsion to explain the rationale behind hardships and sufferings is our own hubris, thinking that God owes us an explanation. That's a, that's a tough pill because we want to explain it, you know. I mean, I as a pastor and a theologian, I want to explain this. I want to help people make sense of, of this suffering. And maybe I will a little bit before we're finished, but I will not presume to speak for God. And I'll warn you not to do that too because I think that puts us all on thin ice. But just to say, hardships happen no matter who you are, and good things happen no matter who you are. That's life under the sun. That's just the way it is on this side of eternity. Now, on the other side, it'll make a little more sense. But on this side, things don't always make sense. Hardships happen despite our efforts to anticipate uh, or avoid them. You know, we, we try to plan and, and avoid things, and sometimes they just don't happen. They defy our attempts uh, to reduce them to a simple formula that we can predict and control. So let's just realize that, you know, I mean, you can do things that bring your, you know, if you, if you uh, 
slam your finger with a hammer. I mean, that's you doing it to yourself, right? So you, you can actually bring on suffering yourself if you want to, but I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, the, the other reason why we need to be ready for hardships is because hardships are not just hardships. Hardships have a purpose, both divine and demonic. It just depends on who you listen to. Job is a perfect case study of this. Job was living his life. Everything was going well for Job. And, uh, you know, the, the image is that Satan comes up. He sort of joins this heavenly host. And God says rather tauntingly to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? Oh, he's my number one man. And Satan said, well, of course he is. You put a hedge around him. You don't let anything happen to him. Everything he does prospers. He's got a good life. Just pull the rug out from under his feet and see how well he does. He'll curse you as soon as things go sideways. You watch. And so things started to go sideways, and Job didn't buckle. And Satan comes back and he says, well, you haven't, you haven't really, really touched Job in a way that would make him curse you. You need to take his health away. Take his health away. Then he'll curse you to his face. And Job lost his health. He lost his, his sons, his daughters, all of his earthly possessions. And then he lost his health he lost his status. He lost his reputation. He lost everything, except his wife, who said, curse God and die. So that was the cheering crowd. You know, the, the, she was there right by his side to tell him what he needed to do. Curse God and die. So perfect, just perfect. The one presence in my life that, okay. But you know, there's a divine purpose. See, Job, Job at the end of the book was never the same. Now, Job, we, we find that things ended up going better for him after it was all said and done. It's sort of one of those stories in the Bible, you know, Job lived happily ever after. But there was something very different about Job. Job didn't live happily ever after. He, left more, he lived more keenly aware that God is God and he is not and there are things in life that we simply cannot answer or understand and that's okay. Serve God. Be faithful to God. Submit to God. It doesn't all make sense. Submit to God. Never walk away from God. Even when things don't make sense, never give up on God. And that's, that was the, the ultimate takeaway that Job had. But at the time, things were kind of challenging for him. Suffering and hardship have a dual purpose. Paul ascribed meaning to his suffering. He said in Philippians 3, 10, and 11, I want to know Christ 
and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul called it the fellowship of suffering. That to whatever extent we experience suffering this side of eternity, we're somehow able to experience greater solidarity with Jesus, the suffering servant, who for the joy set before him endured the suffering, despising the shame for the sake of redeeming his people. And so we find as we experience suffering this side of eternity, there's greater solidarity. He said in 2 Corinthians 1.4, this is really an interesting thing, talking about the purpose of hardships. God comforts us in all our troubles. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Think about it. We're going through difficulties, hardships, and in those hardships, we find God is present. And in that presence, in that comfort, we're able to be an encouragement to other people who are going through sufferings like that. So let me... Um, let me tell the story about what happened with, uh, with our son. So uh, Nathan, Nathan went through uh, some really challenging times uh, early on. Uh, when he was 20 years old, everything changed. He was, he was a different person from that point going forward. And um, it put our whole family into a crisis. And, and the truth is, when you have a loved one who suffers a psychotic break, uh, you're not prepared for that. You just aren't. There's no manual you can look at. The first thing you feel is all alone and helpless. And what you learn right away is that there's not one thing in the system that helps you. Nothing. Nobody comes to stand behind you. Your things are sideways. You call the police. They won't do anything. Well, if he's not an imminent danger to himself or others, there's nothing we can do. If he wants to think he's Pope John the 23rd, he can do that. It's a fine, it, you know, he can be a raging lunatic and he can do whatever he wants to do. There's nothing we can do to help you. We can't take him to the hospital if he's an adult because we don't have that power. It, you know, they would just say he doesn't meet our criteria. There is nothing you can do when you have an adult loved one who suffers a psychotic break. And so we, we felt immediately helpless and reached out to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. And we joined a support group. And we went to a family-to-family -family group. And there were these two older women who were teaching this uh, NAMI class. And, uh, and every single one of us, there were like 12 families, couples. So there were like 20, I don't know, 20-some-odd people in this room, crowded into this room, maxed out. We're all in crisis. We don't know what we're, we're, what we're supposed to do. And these two older ladies who were teaching, they were, I say they were older. They were older than maybe some of you. Well, one, but, was 
One of, yeah, 80, 80 and 70, respectively. <laughs> so older than I am right now. And um, um, hope to get there, but I'm not there yet. Anyway, so this, uh, the 70-year-old uh, at the time had a son who was like 50 years old. So, you know, she had, had this uh, boy when, when she was in her early 20s. And, uh, and he had a psychotic break when he was 19 or 20. And, and she had suffered with his mental health crises her whole life. And she's telling the story about things that were happening that week with her son and like the wheels still coming off and she's crying as she's telling the story. And then she composes herself and she says, the one thing that I want you to get from this class is to have hope. <laughs> and I didn't say it out loud, but I was thinking it. I thought, hope? <laughs> You are the incarnation of hopelessness. <laughs> why would I, why, what, what am I going to have hope for? Am I going to have hope that he's going to get better? Clearly that's not what's going to happen if we're on the same trajectory as you and your son. Hope for what? <laughs> Things aren't going to get better. And, uh, I told her that after we, so we had a, like a reunion after we went through the whole thing and I, I told her the story. She thought it was kind of funny actually, so she wasn't offended. She was a bit surprised, but she wasn't, I said, you know, when you said have hope, I have to tell you, I just did not, that did not align with what I was experiencing from you in that moment. Um, and, uh, but you know what? We have learned to have hope in the face of circumstances that we cannot change. We've learned to have hope when confronted with a challenge that, that will continue on in new and disastrous ways. And, and uh, we're, we, we look to a lifetime of ongoing challenges and um, countless future hospitalizations and other things that, that will happen along the way and navigating those things. And here's the hope. The hope is that even when things don't change, God is present. And we've, we've experienced that. We've actually experienced God's presence in the midst of this. So we can say, even though we cannot change, our circumstances, God can change us in the midst of those circumstances and help us have good days and help us find joy and help us find humor and help us find strength that we didn't even know we had and can galvanize us and create within us this internal armor that enables us to absorb some of that stuff that we didn't think that we'd be able to deal with. So God, God actually makes us equal to tasks that we never wanted to be equal to. And that's part of what we learn when we go through hardships. And it gives us the capacity then to comfort others. I can't tell you how many people uh, and Diane even more than me, because she's, she became um, 
we, we both did, and we've taught the family-to-family -family group for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And that, and Diane's done several of them. I've done one with Diane. But what we found is that we are able then to take the experiences that we've had. And I even tell the story when, when, I, when we do the family-to-family -family thing. And I've, I've shared this with other couples in, in crisis. Um, you know, the hope, hope and hopeless thing, you know, and, and they, they find that helpful. They find it helpful. That's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he said that when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. That's what that means. It means that God is preparing you through your sufferings and hardships to become comfort givers to other people. Once you've metabolized those sufferings in the light of God's grace and learned how to navigate those yourself. We play a key role in giving meaning to our hardships. Uh, but I, I want to caution us here. We play a role because there's a dual role, divine and demonic, because Satan wants to destroy us. With every hardship, every setback, every traffic jam you get in and you lose your cool, Satan wants to use that. He wants to use that to steal your joy and to make you feel like you're just a, a piece of dog poo-poo and you, you don't deserve to even call yourself a Christian. I mean it, you know? There are all kinds of things that Satan wants to use in your life, both big and small, to tear you away from your relationship with God. That's how Satan wants to use the hardships you face in life. And that can sometimes happen. Now, it may not tear you away from God forever, but you look at Job. You look at Job. Man, oh man, did he get close. I mean, there were points where he was really doubting God's love. He was, and I never cursed God, okay? He never stopped processing his sufferings in the light of God. He kept coming back to God. God, show up and let me, let me argue my case. I shouldn't be getting all of this stuff. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve it. I want to have an audience with you so I can defend myself and justify before you why I shouldn't be suffering this way. See, Job was arguing and he was angry and he was pouring it out before the Lord. The psalmists do the same thing. How long, O oh Lord, will you delay? You know, there's so many psalms in which the writer is writing out of this anguish of spirit because they're going through these challenging times. But it's God's inspired record of human beings sorting out their relationship with God amid all the stuff that life brings our way that we find disagreeable. And the thing it models to us is that we never give up on God. We, we bring it to the Lord. We scream at the Lord. We express our anger to the Lord. We express our grief to God and know that God is big enough. As long as we understand that God doesn't owe us an answer. God is God, period. So when it comes to ascribing meaning to our suffering I would just say, let's be cautious. Let's be aware that some people really like to romanticize this or have it all figured out and show how super spiritual they are. 
yeah, I'm going through difficult times, but you know, God has a purpose for it. You know, all things work together for good. Those who, you know, okay, all right. You know, sometimes you wonder where does denial and delusion converge? It's difficult and dangerous when we start doing that. You know, Oswald Chambers, I love Oswald, Oswald Chambers stuff. You know, my utmost for his highest. It, yeah, there's so many wonderful things, but, you know, it's like a fish dinner. You eat the meat, don't choke on the bones. And there was a bone in this one. Oswald Chambers writes, when God gets us alone through suffering, heartbreak, temptation, disappointment, sickness, or thwarted friendship, when he gets us absolutely alone and we are totally speechless, unable to ask even one question, then he begins to teach us. Now that's true. But it's also, it also invites us into this, this sense of super spirituality where, you know, God, you know, and then, then all of a sudden we start seeing how, yes, while I'm going through these difficult times, what God is teaching me. And we, we just have to be careful and cautious. An illustration. I was a seminary student at Bethel Seminary. And one of my classmates, we were, we were starting class and the professor was taking prayer requests. And, uh, and, and this one student, he was sitting right next to me. And he, he, he uh, raised his hand and he said, well, I have a praise. I have a praise. And the professor said, oh, tell us what, what, what's going on. He said, my daughter was killed yesterday. She was killed. Uh, a van lost control and flipped over and crushed her. She was on the sidewalk and it killed her. But it was such an opportunity for us to witness to God's love. And, and the professor rightly responded with deep concern that this was a man who was still in shock and completely in denial and trying to move to quick resolution when when sometimes when we go through hardship, the last thing we need to do is figure out the answer. Don't rush to figure it out. Because sometimes you will never figure out why things have happened to you the way they have this side of eternity. Sometimes you won't get an answer. You just won't. And God will meet you. And God will be present to you in ways that help you get through it. But sometimes it doesn't feel like you will. That is God's truth. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 6 through 11, for the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he purifies each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really a child at all. Since 
we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. Key point right here. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. But let me hasten to add, you can't contrive that. You're not in control of that. You can't orchestrate that. You just have to learn from it. And, and this is what we call retrospective theology. It's theology that you get looking back, not, not figuring it out in the midst of it. It, doesn't, it just doesn't come together that way. We need to be ready for hardships because hardships happen. And because hardships are not just hardships, they have a purpose. And now, some do's and don'ts, quickly. Don't. Don't be like Job's friends. When you have people <clears throat> who you know who are going through hardships and sufferings, don't come alongside them and try to explain why that's happening. Don't think you know God's mind and God's will and God's purpose for that person's life. Just shut up. Seriously, don't say, don't, don't theologize, just be present. The best thing you can do is just show up and sit next to them and say something like, I'm so sorry this is happening. I want you to know I'm here for you. I'm here. And when we have a loved one or a friend who starts doing what Job did, don't try to explain it away. Ah, well, you know, you're just not right. Your theology is wrong, you know. Don't, don't do that either. Just don't do it. And if you're the one in suffering, don't, don't even be like Job who, who, who tried to, you know, go into the, this whole theological explanation. Don't, don't struggle with that. Just, just process it before God. And don't pretend that you're too spiritual to be negatively impacted by hardships. Be transparent like Job was, like the psalmists are. And do's. Here's what you do. Process hardship before the Lord. Be honest, open with your feelings. It's okay. It's okay even to say, I'm really angry at God right now. Or I'm really disappointed with God. You know, Philip Yancey wrote that book, Disappointment with God. Such a poignant title. A, a title that emboldened, I don't know how many millions of Christians to finally admit that, yeah, I am disappointed. Because I guess I did think that because I was doing the right thing, everything was going to be okay for me. You know, it's okay if you're theologically sideways. We all are a little bit. We all have that errant theology in us. And that's what, that's what hardships do. They kind of iron some of that, that bad theology out of our thinking. Because you can't keep that theology when you live long enough before Jesus. Process hardships before the Lord like, the, like Job and the psalmists. And recognize both the unpleasantness of hardships and the potential benefits. 
Hebrews 12 and 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Paul said three different times he had this thorn in the flesh. Hardship, right? Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time, each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and, the ins and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now Paul is saying that on the other side. He's saying that on the other side of this. He's saying this after he sufficiently processed what was going on, retrospective theology. He was able to make sense of this after the fact. But when he was in the middle of it, he prayed three times that God would get rid of those hardships. That kind of sounds like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't it? How many times did Jesus pray, please let this cup pass from me, please? Jesus prayed to get out of it. This is not easy stuff. Nobody wants to go through this stuff. Jesus didn't want to go through it. Paul didn't want to go through it. We don't want to go through it. But hardships happen. But hardships are more than hardships if we can learn from them in the final analysis. So that brings us back to Wiley Coyote. We can... We can Use this image here. See, he never gave up. <laughs> he never gave up. This one isn't going to end well for him either. But you got to credit him. He never gave up. And neither should we. Don't ever give up on God. Wrestle with God. Scream at God. Plead with God. Beg for God's deliverance. But don't ever give up on God. And don't ever assume that God is just punishing you because you've done something wrong. Hardships happen to everybody, good and evil. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us understand this. We don't ask for more hardships. We, uh, we join Jesus and Paul in saying, we don't want hardships. In fact, what hardships we have now, we pray that they would go away. But Lord, uh, above and beyond all of those things, teach us what you would have us to know. Help us, Lord. Meet us in this place and give us hope. Even when we find ourselves in situations that are, for all intents and purposes, hopeless, May we find our hope in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.